The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory, Glory to you, Lord Christ. You've heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will that you get? Are you not even the tax collectors do that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus said this to his followers in the Gospel of John just after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It is a heartbreaking statement that is theologically packed, we do not have time to go into tonight other than to say at the very beginning following Jesus is as Paul says in his letter that we read this evening foolishness because to follow Jesus is to follow him into death being united with Jesus which is the telos of all creation the place that all creation is going to end is in uniting with Christ, entails being united with him in death. There is no avoiding it. The sacrament of baptism, the entrance into the church, is a rite of cleansing and judgment. It is both purifying and death. This is what it means to follow Christ. There's a film that came out a couple years ago called Calvary. And if you haven't seen it, it's great. I highly recommend. Maybe not for kids, okay? Just, you know, there's some stuff in there. Uh, Brendan Gleeson uh, plays Father James, who's this Irish priest in a rural parish. And the film opens as he's hearing a confession. And the confession sets the stakes for the rest of the movie as the person behind the screen explains that they were wronged by a priest earlier in life, and as an act of vengeance, they are going to kill a priest, but not a bad priest, because that wouldn't actually bring about vengeance. They're going to kill a priest who has done nothing wrong, namely, Father James, in a week. You sort of get the idea that Father James knows who it is on the other side of the screen. 
And the rest of the film chronicles the next seven days of Father James' life. What do you think he does? Leave town? It's a good option. Seek protection? Quit the ministry? He does none of these things. Instead, he goes about his parish ministry, and what we find is that his parish is filled mostly with cynical, mean-spirited, nihilistic, entitled, broken people. And in Father James, we are met with a man who isn't soft, but he isn't vengeful either. He's not cuddly, but he's not embittered by what's being done to him. In a real sense, he experiences degradation with each passing day. As he knows that every day that goes by, as he's with these spiteful people, he's a day closer to probably being killed. Brendan Gleeson is absolutely masterful in this film, and you can see the wounds being etched into Father James on Gleeson's face. And in an interview that he did about playing such a role, he said this, I had to absorb the pain and disillusionment of everybody else and their cynicism and their bitterness, and it was relentless. I remember putting on the vestments for mass and feeling like, okay, this is like a suit of armor. And the director said it was like a samurai preparing for battle, and I felt, okay, I'm the protector of whatever I believe to be good, essentially. And it did feel as if I was under assault for the entirety of the shoot, I was shattered at the end of it. So let's not fool ourselves. What Jesus is calling his followers into in this section of the Sermon on the Mount is nothing less than death. To forgive those who are actively wronging you and love people who are your enemies and persecuting you requires a kind of death. So we're going to tick through these commands and we're going to be keeping an eye out for how Jesus is interacting with the Hebrew scriptures and what his illustrations meant to the people hearing them initially and then what his commands require of us as his followers today. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was what the Mosaic law taught about legal retribution. And this has been perceived in modern times, even in probably some of our own minds, as pretty barbaric and unjust, right? Like, some guy gets blinded and he gets to blind the guy who did it? In many ways, the law was actually really kind. Consider the options of the surrounding culture at the time. Either the offender just gets away with whatever they've done, and justice isn't served at all, or the offender is punished far more severely than the crime required. The person who's had their honor besmirched could go and kill that person or perhaps their entire family. So an eye for an eye and a tooth for, for a tooth is not actually barbaric. But we also need to notice that Jesus is here talking to his followers. We have to be careful here because he is not talking to governments. He is not talking to police departments. Nobody wants to live in a world without justice. Okay? God has ordained certain things, certain offices, to bring justice, however imperfectly, on the earth. 
Here Jesus is not talking to your state representative. He's talking to you. He's talking to me. But also notice that Jesus clearly says it's when someone slaps you or takes your coat or forces you to go a mile. This is not a call to sit idly by while others are being wronged. Our Old Testament lesson makes that very clear. We are to go out of our way to bring life and flourishing even to people that are invisible, people on the margins. Believe it or not, I've actually heard uh, churches teach that, that what Jesus is saying here is that if someone breaks into your house and is hurting your wife or children, you are called to not retaliate. False. That is not what he's saying. We are called to protect life when and where we find it being exploited and maligned. Jesus does not say, when someone slaps your neighbor's cheek, turn your neighbor's other cheek as well. Okay? This is one of those sections where we cannot get away with pointing the finger down at somebody else. This is between us and God. And additionally, it's important to note that Jesus didn't say, if someone gouges out your eye, turn to them the other eye. This is not an abrogation of self-defense when your life is being threatened, okay? What's in view with the first example of turning the other cheek is humiliation rather than true physical harm. It's your reputation that is hurt with a slap in the face. Jesus is calling us to give up defensiveness when others malign us. With the example of the coat, he is telling us not to fight against people who are litigious and suing us. In his day, there were two garments owned by most people, the coat and the cloak. Jesus is telling his disciples, if someone is trying to shame you by taking one of your two garments, go ahead and get naked. Just give them the other one. Surprise them. With the example of going the extra mile, he's referring most likely to the practice of Roman soldiers requiring uh, the citizens who they were uh, ruling over to carry their military gear for a mile. It's being conscripted into the service, not just of someone from your own country, but an actual enemy, an occupier. It's utter humiliation. And Jesus is saying, don't just go one mile, go two. What he's telling us is to essentially give up our instincts to defend our own honor. It is a radical call to non-retaliation. Anybody here remember Roy James? Roy James was a young man uh, in his early 20s during the 1960s, which, of course, in America was a time of turmoil and social unrest and all sorts of things happening. And Roy was passionate and fearless about what he believed to be right. And eventually, he attends a rally that was antithetical to everything he believed and held dear. And he sits up near the front, and after hear hearing the speaker for a while, he'd had more than he could take, and he jumps up on the stage and begins to punch the man who was speaking to the crowd repeatedly in the face. The man being punched was stunned, understatement, and fell backward at first as the crowd screamed in horror, but Roy continued punching, watching as blood flowed from the man's face. The people, of course, started to rush 
the stage, but as the leader of the rally regained his balance, he shouted for the crowd to be silent. And as Roy reared back for another punch, the man dropped his hands and calmly waited for another blow to strike. Roy hesitated, and the leader told his people, don't touch him, don't touch him. We have to pray for him. And suddenly, Roy James found himself being talked to calmly by the man he had just violently attacked. And the truth is that nobody remembers Roy James. The only reason I even know his name is because the man that he was punching was Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. King was the foremost leader of the civil rights movement, and his legacy and his achievements can be traced back to this moment, to his reaction to Roy James, nonviolence in the face of aggression. But notice that even in the act of dropping his hands and opening himself up to whatever damage this young man, man wanted to perpetrate, it must be said, Dr. King was not one to acquiesce. He wasn't one to just accept the status quo and keep quiet right? There's a difference between turning the other cheek and allowing injustice to continue in the world without speaking up. Those are not the same thing. And what this requires, first of all, is a deep knowledge of self. Because the kind of life that Jesus is asking us to live, this sort of foolishness, can only really be done by those who have been lifted out of the poverty of spirit that they know themselves to have existed in by Jesus. It is only those who have been justified by his death and resurrection and who wake up every day recognizing that fact that can live this way. When you rest in the righteousness of Christ, guess what? It no longer matters what others try to do to malign you. Because Christ's record is your record. But it also requires a deep knowledge of the other. It requires seeing the world rightly. Which is to say that we all have to recognize that we have been born with blinders. With like glasses that invert reality from us. Jesus here calls this example person, the one who's going around slapping people and suing them for their coats and forcing them to walk a mile. He calls them the evil one. Which tells us, first of all, that Christ is not a God of non-judgment. He's very clear about what he thinks about these people. They're evil. But it also clues us into the larger picture because in Scripture, the evil one almost always refers to the devil himself. And though the construction here is a slight bit different than normal, there's still a connection being made between the person doing the persecuting and the devil. Jesus is hinting at ultimate things here, that you are either filled with his spirit, the Holy Spirit of the triune God, or you are, in a sense, filled with the spirit of this world, the spirit of evil and perdition. So what does that tell us? Well, it tells us who the fight is against. I'll never forget being in college and reading, yes, reading Donald Miller's Blue Like Jazz, okay? You couldn't escape it back then, guys. I'm sorry. But he's talking about the culture wars in America and the failure of the church, and he had this line that just shattered me. He said, in war, you shoot the enemy, not the captive. 
Jesus is hinting here that the people that are even persecuting the church, persecuting him, are in some way the captive. And it is only when we reposition ourselves within our own narratives that we're constantly telling about the world to the rightful place, the place where we belong, not the main character, but a disciple of the main character, not the focal point, but a follower of the focal point. It's only when we position ourselves in submission to Christ that we can begin to understand this. Suddenly, we no longer have to fight for our own status. We don't have to retaliate when we're humiliated. And when we start to see that the story of the entire world is one in which humanity has been deluded and lured away from the true lover of their souls, away from light, away from life, away from all that is good and beautiful, and imprisoned in our own guilt and shame, well, then it becomes possible to view those who are maligning us with compassion. It becomes possible to see them as perpetrators of evil, yes, and victims of evil, just like us. And as a poet friend of mine once wrote, that is how you make the devil fumble his wine. You want to throw Satan off guard? Love people who are being filled, in a sense, with his spirit of darkness and persecuting you. Love them back. It's the one thing he didn't think of. He never thought that Christ would actually submit to death. In the moment that Satan thought he had the biggest victory, he was actually being crushed under the heel of Christ. And when you love someone back who's persecuting you, you are just kind of grinding it down a little bit more. Make the devil fumble his wine. Or as Christ himself put it, love your enemies. Now the Old Testament never actually said hate your enemies, but the rabbis taught that you were only to love your neighbor, which meant loving only your fellow law-abiding Jews. All others were to be hated, especially Roman occupiers and especially Gentiles. But Jesus instructs his followers to love their enemies. How are you supposed to do that? I think there's really only one way. You pray for them, and you pray for them again, and you pray for them again, and you keep praying for them until you find forgiveness and love in your heart for people that are doing you wrong. Until you begin to see them with the eyes of Jesus, who could pray for the very men driving nails into his hand, forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they are doing. Getting along with each other, being pals with people who view the world the same way you do, that's basic. Anybody can do that. But actively loving and seeking the good of people who wish that we didn't exist, that is radical, and it is incredibly godlike. If you want to be like Christ, 
you will find yourself praying like he prayed. There is no other religion or world system that believes that God came and gave his life for the people that had set themselves up as his enemies. Yet that is exactly what the Christian gospel tells us God did for us in Christ. And so as Christians, as little Christs, we are called now to follow suit, to lose our lives for the sake of Christ and his gospel in order to find them. In a few more days, we're going to be heading into the season of Lent, which is a time of introspection and repentance where we consider our frailty and our spiritual poverty apart from Christ. And I would submit to you that it is in seasons such as Lent that we become equipped to do this work that Christ is calling us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. You see, our current culture, even our current church culture, is obsessed with changing the world and rising up. Some of the things that they're talking about are really good things. Some of them are things that we should want and work for, but I've got news for you. Jesus, if you are a follower of his, is not asking you to rise up. He's asking you to go lower to sink further down into humility. He's asking you to enter into a servanthood that this world would never expect. And it is a servanthood that you cannot do apart from prayer. Prayer is where this begins. This is why daily prayer is such an important part of the Christian life. Because as Karl Barth famously said, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. That's the place to begin. In a couple weeks when we come to Lent, don't just think about things that you can give up. Think about things that you can give up so that you can engage more and more in prayer so that you can become like Christ loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. Because the person that we persecuted, the person that we set ourselves up as enemies against, loved us enough to die for us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.